Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. Good afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM, KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rock. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. And I'm Gordon Campbell. Coming up next, recent developments in science and technology. Also joining us is Kurt Suplay, who will talk about his book, Basic Everyday Science. In addition, you can find out, what is the speed of light? So stay tuned for all of this, plus the world-famous question of the week, right here on Berkeley Grotts. Welcome back to Berkeley Crocs. I'm Franklin. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. And I'm Gordon Campbell. How's everyone doing? I'm oh, doing all right. It's a nice fun day for uh, science fun, as always. Yeah, yeah. You know, I just made a new resolution. What's that? I plan to live forever. <laughs> all right. So far, so good. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing well thus far, uh, although, well... <laughs> Don't screw it up for me, man. <laughs> how, do you, how do you actually plan on going about living forever? By staying alive. <laughs> all right. But I guess breathing is important for that. Yeah, breathing is important. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, any uh, any good news in science this week? Oh, I thought that was going to be a segue for some kind of uh, longevity thing. Yeah, but me too. <laughs> but well, <all>? no. <laughs> you may not live forever, but perhaps you may become magnetized. Become magnetized? Yes. You mean I could become like the refrigerator magnet on your uh, refrigerator? You know, if, if you actually became the refrigerator magnet on my refrigerator, I'm sure uh, my refrigerator would be more thankful than I. <laughs> well, it turns out that actually researchers at the Australian National University have created a form of carbon that's actually magnetic. A magnetic carbon? Uh, yes. So this has actually occurred uh, sort of as an accident. They were trying to make these carbon nanotubes. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the process, they wound up making kind of a, uh, a schmutzy sort of foam. But it turns out that this foam forms these tetrapod structures in which there's three bonded atoms to it, but one bond is left open. So there's a free electron. And that free electron basically can give it magnetic properities. A paramagnetic? Yeah. Some, and, and actually, the magnetic uh, magnetism sort of dissipates after a while as these presumably these structures fall apart. Basically, this uh, tetrapod material can fall apart within a few minutes, but they're figuring out that there might be a way that they can actually stabilize these structures to keep the magnetism in place. Do these researchers have any idea what kind of uh, materials they can make out of this? Yeah, well, apparently it can be used, for instance, in uh, th- it has some semiconductor-type properties as well, so they mm-hmm. think that could be useful, and also they're thinking some medical applications which use ma- ma- you know, magnets, perhaps at small scales. Oh, Pulling okay. notes on the refrigerator? That would be... <laughs> we can become <laughs> 
but we should probably t- pass that on to them. This actually turns out uh, to be very interesting. Up till now, it was thought that perhaps impurities were accounting for a lot of these uh, effects, but it turns mm-hmm. out that, in fact, they removed all the impurities and they're still having the magnetism, so it looks like a novel form of uh, carbon. Wow. And you know what? I only thought gravity sucks. <laughs> <laughs> so if anyone wants to know more about this? If anybody wants to know more, they can uh, take a look. Uh, it's published in the uh, recent edition of uh, Science Now. Apparently, there is potential for a huge epidemic of sudden oak death. Sudden oak death? Yeah. You mean it kills the oak suddenly? It does. Um, what we need, I think, is the se- sudden cucumber death <laughs> instead. Right. <laughs> that could... If we can feed the oaks cucumbers, right. keep them alive or something. Apparently, in a nightmare come true, the pathogen Phytophora remorum was found this month in a nursery that has shipped potentially infected plants to more than 600 nurseries in 39 states. Oh, my God. So it's like typhoid Mary. (laughs) Yeah, it's really a huge problem, significant emergency. Hmm. This pathogen causes lethal trunk infection um, and kills several species of oaks and has killed tens of thousands of oaks in California. So are they worried that this disease could spread throughout the country? Yeah, that's the worry. So have they tried to do anything to prevent the the spread of this? Have they quarantined all those? Yeah, so apparently they've quarantined all these nurseries and they're trying to track down all the plants that have been shipped. Oh, mm-hmm. A tremendous job, Jeez. I suspect. Uh, I guess uh, be on the lookout for any uh, infected oak when they come your way. <laughs> 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 Disease! Top of them Disease. for firewood. <laughs> yeah, if you find a sick oak in your yard, maybe... Think twice. Yeah, you'll never it's kind of, it reminds me of that movie Dawn of the Dead that's out right now. You know, these zombie oaks <laughs> <laughs> coming to attack us. The uh, killer oaks. <laughs> yes, but nothing to, nothing to laugh at, I guess. Yeah. Sudden oak death. Sudden All right. Death. Yeah. All right. So, if people are interested in uh, preventing the sudden oak death or learning more about it, they can look at Science Now okay. this week. All right. So, I got a little bit of bad news this week. And what's that? Uh, looks like CO2 levels are rising faster than ever. Geez, I guess I better stop uh, breathing out or exhaling. <laughs> <laughs> Take it easy, man. Yeah, well, breathing was never one of my favorite hobbies anyway, so... <laughs> Too boring, huh? Yeah. You could live forever, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, in my own mind, I suppose, yeah. Uh, measurements that were taken on Mauna Kea in Hawaii indicate that the level of CO2 has increased 3 parts per million since last year, and that's a lot more than the 1.8 ppm that's been increasing uh, on average each year. I see. They weren't taking this measurement next to a uh, CO2-producing plant, were they? <laughs> no, nor uh, next to a volcano. They would think that the measurements are quite uh, free from the noise. Oh, is that right? was taken pretty high up or something like that? About three kilometers. Oh, that's high enough. <laughs> yeah. This was work that was carried out by the NOAA, uh, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. I see. So do they, is this uh, sort of a dangerous level for us to be having right now? Three parts per million doesn't seem like much. It's not much, but if you uh, add it up over many years, it's quite a lot. In fact, CO2 level has jumped about 30% since uh, the beginning of the last century. I see. Do they have any ideas to the cause of the jump? Just, you know, use from coal, fossil fuels, petroleum, stuff that we, we rely on for our energy needs. The usual suspects, as it were. Yeah, the usual suspects. So scientists are worried that we may not be doing enough to stop the global warming. Or could it just be sort of a runaway effect that maybe... Uh, That's the one of their fears, that yeah. since we our Earth could be in some sort of metal-stable state, uh-huh. that, you know, if we push it too much, it may just suddenly become <coughs> like Venus or something. Right. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I think our, our, the people are somewhat in a metastable state as well. <laughs> I know I am. <laughs> I could snap at any moment, Frank. I guess if anyone wants to know more, go to the website of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. 
Well, I wonder if that change in uh, CO2 levels has anything to do with the uh, sea cucumber explosion we're having. Sea cucumbers are exploding? <laughs> not, <laughs> not in a sushi bar, right? <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. Apparently, in the North Atlantic seafloor, they're finding where they used to find just one or two of the sea cucumber um, when the North Atlantic seafloor was dredged for samples. Normally, where they found just one or two of the sea cucumber Amparema rosea per hectare, and now they're finding thousands of these sea cucumbers present per hectare. Oh, my God. So huge numbers of uh, sea cucumbers invading the Earth. Yeah. <laughs> wow, invasion of the sea cucumbers. <laughs> Uh, I think I saw that movie. <laughs> <laughs> it was quite good. <laughs> and they're not sure quite what's causing this uh, this bloom in sea cucumber numbers. Huh. The only thing that they know is that these sea cucumbers seem to have higher levels of carotenoids in their guts. Yeah. And this might have something to do they with... They don't have the guts. <laughs> <laughs> this might have something to do with a change in their diet and maybe some organism that is more prevalent now than it used yeah. to be. So either that or they're eating all the uh, sharks in the ocean or something. <laughs> yeah. Or the dolphins. Those sea, those sea cucumbers can get quite nasty. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, uh, can can we actually eat cucumber, cucumbers or what's the they deal? They have that in the sushi bar. Yeah, yeah. they're the Japanese. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's a delicacy. <laughs> that's good news for us then. Mm-mm. When the Price will go down then. <laughs> yeah, when the desertification happens from uh, global warming. Right, right. We'll have a <laughs> food supply. Get ready, folks. It'll uh, see cucumbers and spam. That's the diet of the future. Hitting your supermarket. That's cool. So if you want to read more about this. This is another article from Science Now. All right, and that's all for this week's look at current developments in the world of science. You're listening to Berkeley Grox here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, Kurt Suplay will join us to talk about his new book, The New Everyday Science Explained, From the Big Bang to the Human Genome. So stay tuned.
Welcome back to Berkeley Grocks. Why do shoelaces become untied? Why do we have seasons? Well, these are not the typical questions that a scientist might ask every day, but something that you might ask for everyday science. Well, joining us today is a very special guest, uh, Mr. Kurt Souple, an acclaimed science writer, and recently came out with the book, The Secrets Behind Everyday Science. Mr. Souple, thanks for joining us on Berkeley Grocks today. Thanks for the opportunity. First of all, what is this book about, and who is it written for? Well, the book is intended for a lot of folks who may have gotten turned off to science at one time or another in their lives, either because they were afraid they'd have to wear a pocket protector or uh, be called a <laughs> geek or because they were they didn't want to solve equations, and they somehow sort of lost track. But in fact, they would like to know about the scientific principles that govern things in the world around them. In your book, you talk about everyday science in terms that most people can relate to. What got you interested in doing this? Well, I was at the Washington Post for uh, many years as a uh, science writer and editor, and people would ask questions, and at one point I edited a section that had a kind of a write-in-your-questions thing, and the, the questions were remarkably similar, and the questions that my kids asked me were remarkably similar. Why are leaves green? Why do airplanes fly? Uh-huh. Um, why do curveballs curve, et cetera, et cetera? And pretty soon you realize there's a lot of science that impinges right on people's everyday lives that they don't know anything about, but if they did, they'd see the world in a different way. I was just wondering, are you affiliated with uh, this other radio program called Everyday Science, produced by Bayer? No, this is just the title of the book, is the, the new Everyday Science Okay. from National Geographic. <laughs> Perhaps you could describe some of your stories here. Which one are your favorite among them? Well, I like, I have uh, personal favorites. I like the fact that most people, when they fly in airplanes, are under the uh, apprehension that uh, it's the motor that is making them fly, the engine in the, in the jet or the propeller in the propeller plane. In fact, it's not. It's the difference in pressure between the top of the wing and the bottom of the wing. And what I like about it is it's such an old concept developed by a scientist named Bernoulli uh, way over 100 years ago, and yet only recently applied. The Wright brothers' flight, as you know, was only about 100 years ago, and most people riding in airplanes are not aware of that. They're also not aware that the same, exactly the same forces that make an airplane fly, mm-hmm. makes a lift on the wing, also make curveballs curve, which is interesting. So among like the misconceptions that people have about science, which one do you feel most strongly about clarifying? Well, most people are, would like to believe that things that happen are random or accidental or so on and so forth. There's a lot fewer accidents in nature than you would think. It is not, for example, uh, an accident that all snowflakes have six points or that all thunderstorms tend to, to even though they're formed by very different kinds of, of weather and situations, all tend to take on the same kind of shape. And once you begin to understand those shapes and forces and concepts, you can understand the world around you a lot. Just glancing to your book, you have some really amazing pictures here. How were you able to get to them? Like, are they from uh, National Geographic? Well, National Geographic, as you know, is, is probably the nation's leading purveyor of graphic images, and their quality is unsurpassed in this. And this is, uh, graphic images are their specialty. And that was one of the great joys of doing this book, is that realizing that it could be done in a way that would be visually extremely attractive, if not outright riveting. In fact, it's a little worrisome for a writer, because, the, you know, the pictures are so attractive that they tend to draw attention away from the all-important word, but uh, it was a great privilege to be able to work with their graphics resource. I noticed one of them uh, came out from a TV commercial a couple years ago, a guy sitting in the chair, and then it seems like there's a wind blowing at him, even though it's stereo, right? right? Yeah, that is obviously not a National Geographic. (laughs) The rights to that were purchased for the book. But what's good about it is it's a very intense representation of what acoustic waves actually do. I mean, they are pressure waves. They will blow out your eardrums if you go to the wrong kind of rock concerts over enough time. And uh, all that illustration does is to show you a highly exaggerated effect of the stuff that you're doing every day. 
So I enjoyed how your book discussed basic concepts in science, uh, particularly the force of nature. Perhaps you could describe this a little bit to our audience. Uh, yeah, well, most people are not aware that the, the, they see this vast array of things that go on every day. And one of the fascinating things about science is that it, it enables you to see out of that huge diversity of stuff that makes up your everyday life, it's all being determined by a comparatively few simple principles. And, and one of the great things about learning about the four fundamental forces is that all of a sudden, everything you look at, you realize, is the product either of electromagnetic interactions or gravity or the strong nuclear force or the weak nuclear force. And that's suddenly enormously interesting. So in addition to the basic principles of nature that you just described, uh, your book also goes into the science behind some of our most pressing issues. Perhaps we could talk about a couple of them, um, global warming and the carbon cycle behind it. For me, personally, a big motivation in the book, I mm -hmm. firmly believe that you cannot be a responsible citizen of this democracy at the present time and cast intelligent votes on a number of things that we do, like you know, cloning or climate change, or as you say, uh, global warming, stem cell research, genetically modified foods, the energy policy, unless you are prepared to understand at least a few of the scientific concepts. No, no, you don't have to get out the calculator, but you do have to begin to understand these things, and the carbon cycle is an absolutely essential part of it. Well, it's just perceived to be hard, but you know it's not hard, and you'll never understand the prospect of climate change without understanding that and without understanding the greenhouse effect. And what about bioterrorism and how our immune system responds to diseases? Well, the, the people need to know a great deal more about the processes that cause infection and about the immune system that prevents infection because we are, as several uh, writers have already pointed out, we are on the brink of a, a major change in the way that we are exposed to pathogens around the world. Two different things have happened in the last few decades that have made this kind of alarming. One is the widespread use of antibiotics. Yes, they will kill many microbes, but they will also leave living those microbes that are not affected by <laughs> Make, antibiotics. Stronger. So you get antibiotic resistant strains growing, and the more that we use more and more and more antibiotics when we don't need it, the more we perpetuate antibiotic resistant strains of microbes. At the same time, we have 6 billion people on the planet, and travel is now easier and faster and cheaper than it ever was. Mm -hmm. And as a result, we're exchanging germ pools an awful lot faster than we ever were before. And as a result, you put those two together, and it's a frankly sort of uh, terrifying prospect for, from a public health perspective. Could you perhaps tell us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in uh, science writing? I was the kid in high school who won the science fair prizes and all of that stuff. And when I left high school, I was absolutely determined that I was going to be a nuclear physicist and keep the world safe from the commies. Mm -hmm. And then I got to college, and uh, literature suddenly seemed very attractive. So I went through college and grad school in English literature, ended up being an English teacher and then a writer. But I've always been interested in science, and then I discovered that those two are not at all contradictory. In fact, there's a huge demand for people who can write about science. And I finally, at the Washington Post, where I worked 25 years, I was able to combine those, and it was an enormous satisfaction. Which brings me to the next question. There seems to be a problem of science literacy in America. Perhaps there's a dearth of good science writing in the media. Do you have any comments on how we can improve our science education? Have you got seven or eight hours? Sure. <laughs> um, there, there are any number of reasons for this, and the unfortunate thing about it is that there are too many reasons. They range from the pedagogical, where we don't really know how to teach science to people in 
the very best ways. We know quite a lot about how to teach reading because it's been studied carefully, scientifically, over the years. We now know pretty much what dyslexia is. Mm-hmm. We know how to rectify it. We know how to, to solve different kinds of reading problems uh, with different kinds of curricula. We don't know anything like that kind of stuff for how to teach science and math. And it's very important that the work is going on now, and one of these days we will know as much about how to teach science as we do about now how to teach reading. But we're not even close to being there. At the same time, you have a, a culture in which scientists unaccountably are not held up as role models. I never cease to be stunned by this. If you were to ask people, pick the two or three people who made the most difference to the human condition in, say, the 20th century, the people that you pick would almost certainly be scientists. They'd be like Jonas Salk with the Salk vaccine, or they'd be Albert Einstein or somebody like that. And yet, when you look at the people who are represented in popular culture, all across the spectrum, broadcast, uh, print, etc., there's never a scientist in the bunch. Seems the average person could name several MBA stars, whereas they probably have a hard time naming even one good scientist. Yes, and whose fault is that? In part, it's the it's the media, and that's the easy easy people to blame. But it is also true that the science community has not been particularly proactive in going out and talking to the public and explaining to them that what the work they do is not magical, is not weird. You do not have to wear a pocket protector. <laughs> you do not have to have enormously thick glasses. These are, are ordinary people. What the worst misconception about science that is held in the United States is that it's a special niche uh, vocation that is pursued only by a special kind of weirdo. That is absolutely and utterly untrue. And Hollywood has not exactly helped either. There's no doubt about it. What's fascinating to me as, as a popular culture consumer, Hollywood pumps out lots and lots and lots of science fiction movies. So there's obviously a great deal of interest in science. You, you don't just see science fiction movies because they're aliens. You see it because there are, are interesting things about rockets or planets or asteroids or this or that. But that the way the scientists are portrayed in there is not that much different from the kind of stereotypical cartoon that you see across the country. The white coat, the kind of messed up hair, the tie askew, inability to communicate in ordinary language, and this this kind of stereotyping, which we would never accept for uh, racial or ethnic or other mm-hmm. kinds of groups, is still considered quite valid in Hollywood. And do you think the World Wide Web has helped to promote science? Uh, indeed, there's a lot of good information out there, but also uh, misinformation. was cruising around the website the other day, and I decided I'd make a count of all the products that sold themselves with the slogan, contains no chemicals. And I was <laughs> stunned to find dozens of them, from hair treatments to, there was even one uh, meat seasoning, contains no chemicals. The only thing that doesn't contain chemicals is a hard vacuum. And we've gotten away from that. We now associate chemicals with things like dioxins, et cetera, et cetera. And we have lost any idea that it is, in fact, chemicals that keep us alive. It is chemistry that keeps the human body going and converts food into energy. And that's what I wanted to do in that section of the book, was to explain that these are not weird, mysterious, um, incomprehensible processes, but you can understand them yourself. After all, we are made of chemicals. (laughs) We are. Mostly water, but uh, a lot of other stuff. I guess we're running a little bit out of time here today. Uh, are there any last words you'd like to add about yourself or your book? I want people to understand that the concepts that are involved in people's everyday lives are not that difficult to understand. They are intrinsically fascinating. They're fun to learn about. They can be made very exciting and rewarding, and this book is, is an attempt to do that, and I hope it will have that effect. All right. Thank you very much for joining us on Berkeley Rocks today. Sure thing. And we were just talking to Mr. Kurt Suplay about science literacy and his new book, The New Everyday Science Explained. 
This book is now available in bookstores and online at Amazon.com. This is Berkeley Rocks you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, we're going to find out what's in your mineral water and what's the spill like. So stay right here. Back to Berkeley Rocks, I've always wondered what's mineral water. Well, here's this week's Everyday Science. Ever ask yourself, what's mineral water? The answer can be found in Everyday Science. Another name for mineral water is aerated water, and unlike tap water, it contains minerals and gases. To get the lowdown on mineral water, that's deep underground where it all begins. Down here, rainwater has soaked into the earth, dissolving mineral matter found deep in the ground. Some of the more common underground minerals include calcium, magnesium, potassium, sodium, and silica. Oh, wait, what's that? It's gas, which is also present. Could be hydrogen sulfide, or maybe carbon dioxide, the same gas that carbonates your favorite soda and gives some mineral waters their sparkling personality. By the way, this mineral water is naturally a very healthy bubble bath. For centuries, people have soaked in mineral springs for their soothing effects. And lots of people like to drink mineral water, which is good news because unlike filtered water, it provides our bodies with valuable dissolved minerals, also known as electrolytes. It's even been known to ease rheumatism, skin disease, and poor digestion. Let's make like a bubble and rise. That was fun. Well, that's all for today. Time to go with the flow. And thanks for being a part of Everyday Science. Everyday Science is part of Bayer Corporation's national education program, Making Science Make Sense. Wow, thanks a lot. That was a delicious explanation. I think it's time for a bottle of water for me right now. 
All right, and now here's Mr. Forrest Gump with the answer to last week's question of the week. Forrest? Thank you, Mr. Lee. And now here's the answer. What is the speed of light? I may not be as fast as the speed of light, but I know how fast it is. It's 3.0 times 10 to the 8 meters per second, and that's the speed of light. And now for this week's question. What is a ribozyme? And I'll give you a hint. It has to do with the origin of life. If you know the answer or you think you know the answer, you can contact us at grox at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but maybe you'll get some insight into the origins of life. And that's all for this week's edition of Break the Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us, you can reach us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Gordon Campbell. And I'm Franklin. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also stay tuned for more music with your host, Katie.